The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. I'm Simon Reynolds and I'm in an imaginary airport business lounge with the world's most successful people waiting for their flight. Business people have to travel and sometimes delays happen and we can take advantage of that. You get to hear 45 minutes of one guest in conversation before their flight boards. You'll hear their stories, the triumphs, the challenges and the lessons they've learned along the way. Welcome to the Business Lounge. Today's guest co-founded a company that absolutely dominates the super competitive world of travel agencies. From humble beginnings and using very little initial startup capital, he has built one of the greatest travel companies in the world, Flight Centre, which now operates in 24 countries and has a stock market valuation of over $4 billion. How did he do it and what lessons can he teach you? We're about to find out. Graham Turner, welcome to the Business Lounge. Thank you very much. Awesome to have you here. Now, we know you as, as one of the co-founders of Flight Center, but of course, you had another business which was pretty famous in its day before that, which was Top Deck Travel. Bizarrely, for those listening, it was double-decker buses being driven all over Europe as, as a tourism play. Tell us, how did you go from being a vet in London to running a bus company? Yeah, it's a long story, but uh, effectively, we'd been to the Munich Olympics with some friends in 70, uh, was that 72? Mm. And um, we travelled around in a combi after that for a while around Europe, went back to England uh, to basically do locums as a vet. We'd seen, while we were travelling around Europe and staying in campgrounds, we'd seen a couple of uh, double-deckers fitted out you know, with kitchens and beds and that sort of thing. Nothing terribly elaborate. But um, when when I was working up near Leeds at a place called Selby, uh, Sherburn and Elmwood, actually, in Lee, uh, Yorkshire, yeah. I had a student vet with me and we're out um, looking at a horse, I think, from memory. And uh, there was an old airfield just stacked with old double-decker, relatively old double-decker buses. Mm-hmm. So with that in the back of my mind, we went and had a chat to them and, yeah, there was probably oh, a few hundred buses there, double-deckers, and one of them had been fitted out. And so it wasn't a perfect fit-out, but um, with a bit of adaptation, I reckon we could make it work. And anyway, about a week or two later, this was in September, I was at the Oktoberfest, you know, the yeah, Munich sure. Beer Fest, and one of my other friends, uh, Jeff Lomas, was there, and over a few steins of beer, we... Um, I, I convinced him that we should buy this bus. I think it was 650 pounds and uh, modify it a bit and then run run trips with friends, uh, sharing costs. Obviously, what happens with friends is they promise you to come with you and all that, and then it doesn't happen. So we switched pretty quickly to um, recruiting paying passengers. And we, we left on, uh, I think it was November the 5th, 1973 uh, on a six-week Spain, Portugal, Moroccan. So you were 23 years old when you did that. Did you have the classic scenario where your parents said, what are you giving up a career as a vet to do this? Well, I I grew up on an apple orchard near Stanthorpe in southern Queensland, and uh, my parents generally uh, encouraged, um, you know, to do do whatever you um, felt like. And the one thing I knew uh, when I went to vet school in in, uh, UQ, 
is that I didn't want to become a, an apple orchardist. Yeah. I didn't make that clear to mum and dad, but um, and they, they were quite supportive. But in 73, in, in the early 70s, of course, um, communication was by mail mainly. You might do a telephone call from a post office, you know, once a month or two months and that. So um, they probably didn't even find out until we were on the road. So uh, I, I don't think it worried them. Um, eventually they came and visited us in about 78, 79 in London. I knew the people from uh, Student Travel, you know, S- the old STA, and that we managed to get them student cards and uh, student flights. Amazing. So they came over and, uh, and, and they were quite happy about that, I think. And did you put them up in one of your buses? <laughs> it was probably worse than that. We had a, um, a flat in uh, Fulham Broadway, and the the shop that we used to sell the trips out of was on the ground floor, and we had about three floors of basically bunk beds. They got the one double bed. Uh, they were there for a couple of weeks, but uh, luxury. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Now, did that business boom straight away, or was it was it tough to grow? Look, it pretty much boomed uh, to to a reasonable extent, and yeah, you know, I'd say we were pretty well differentiated. We were the only operator. There were plenty of camping tour operators like Kentucky and, and Transit and others, but you had to put your tents up every night and uh, blow your Lolo up and this sort of thing. So we had a, a really differentiated product. And although it wasn't for everyone, we could basically fill buses up pretty quickly. And that's how we grew. We would, if we thought we could fill a trip, that would pay for the cost of the bus and the buses fit out. Hmm. We'd we'd book the trip and buy another bus. And uh, indeed, on the first trip, Bill James, who was is a partner in uh, Flight Centre as well, uh, he says, "I'm going to. This is such a good idea. I'm going to buy a bus and fit it out with my savings," which he did. And so when we came back from the second trip, he had the bus ready to go on on the third trip, and uh, that's how it grew. And I think after. After a year, we had three buses. After two years, we had six. And by 1980, 81, we had about 80 buses running um, mainly in uh, Europe, but also to Kathmandu and uh, across Australia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely incredible. So you were quite ambitious and aggressive about this business. It wasn't just a lark, was it? Well, uh, it's an interesting story because we wanted to travel, we wanted to have fun, and that's, that's what it was basically about uh, for the first couple of years. And I remember um, I took the first overland with Bill um, across from London through to Kathmandu in 1975. And um, I flew back from Kathmandu and as while well, Bill took the bus back because we had to, um, you know, someone had to do the work, I suppose. When I came back, the our accountant, sort of accountant, who was an old school friend of mine, he said, you, you should be making this a serious business. It, it shouldn't just be fun and, you know, just beer and Skittles. And um, I had a bit of a look at it. And that's when, that was probably after we'd been going two and a half, three, nearly three years, uh, we decided to make it a serious business. Uh, and um, and that's when we really started growing and um, and in taking it more seriously. I, but I, but I, I've always been a bit of an empire builder, you know. It, I was, I'd never be satisfied with one or two buses, but... Uh, uh, even if I'd remained a vet, I'm sure I would have done something um, more expansionist than uh, probably the average vet does. Yeah, yeah, maybe have people sleeping in the vet at night, the <laughs> <laughs> the uh, surgery. Now, you grew it hugely, and 
Around the mid-80s, though, you sold out of Top Deck, moved to Australia and, and began Flight Centre. Why did you sell out? Well, what happened was um, our son Matthew was born in uh, 83. Jude and I, my wife, we decided to come back to Australia to to live. We did a lot of our bookings out of Australia then anyway, so there was quite a bit of work to do in Australia. At the same time, we were, ha- we were struggling uh, with cash flow in Top Deck. Uh, in fact, we... Um, Around that 80, 81, we almost went um, went under just through lack of cash. It's not the sort of business that banks would loan money on. So uh, you had to exist on. And, and one of the things we did at the time was split the company into about six different divisions, you know, like a Europe operating, an Asian operating business, a charter operation, a workshop because we, we had to uh, we had all of our own buses and they took a lot of maintenance. Um, and then uh, uh, this basically the selling division, and they all operated as separate profit and loss. We basically gave 25% of each business to our senior manager who was running it. So when it came to about 86, and this is when we, you know, Top Deck's uh, flight center started in 82. And by 86, um, it was starting to grow quite a lot. And the managers, those six or seven guys, wanted to buy us out, which um, Mick Carroll, who was one of our partners, um, negotiated with them, and we sold out of that. And, of course, the, the story goes that Top Deck eventually basically went broke in uh, about 2002, and uh, myself and a few others, including um, Bill James and um, a, a few other people, basically uh, took it on board, and uh, James Nathan who was an old um, an, an old friend, he ran it for the next uh, probably 13 years mm. before we um, Flight Centre brought it back again. So we own Top Deck again for all our... Ah, oh, fantastic. What a beautiful loop. Uh, so you moved into travel uh, agency and in those days the margins were fantastic. Now we're in an environment which which is really pretty crazy where... Many of the people that you're partnering with or the companies, the, the hotels and the airlines are actively trying to get people to book direct and, and not even use you. It must, uh, it must be so tough to function in an, an environment like that. Um, how, do you, how do you handle the ever-crushing margins that appear to be occurring in travel? Yeah, obviously the travel industry has changed from 82 in 82, for example, it was illegal to discount airfares. Wow. And the way we differentiated ourselves was advertising the name, basically flight centre, uh, discount airfare specialists. We were, and we were pretty lucky because we didn't get prosecuted, although some travel agents did. And the government changed the law in about 83, 84. So we were just there at the absolute right spot. Then, of course, the internet comes about, around the 95 to 2000 era, um, which I sort of at the time discounted that it would ever amount to anything, but uh, <laughs> I was pretty wrong there. So obviously the industry's changed a lot. You know, up until probably 10 years ago, the margins generally were pretty good, even on airfares. Mm-hmm. Now the air margins are pretty slim. Uh, it depends on the airlines. Um, you know, in, in this market particularly, uh, Qantas and Air New Zealand have quite low margins. But a lot of the other products, even though you might be able to book them online, people do like to get advice about them, whether they're tours or hotels or cruises. 
um, and there are generally pretty good margins on it. So it's just a matter of changing uh, our model. We've become much more specialised, uh, not the flight centre brand so much. It's still a mass market travel mm-hmm. uh, retailer. Even within Flight Centre, we have, you know, first in business, we have a groups division, we have a, a business travel division, and a lot of these more specialist areas um, uh, are the way that, you know, we can, we can still make money. Uh, obviously, we had the COVID restrictions that um, didn't do us any, any good, of course, but um, we're coming out of that reasonably well, but it will be a five-year exercise from when we were originally locked down in, a, in not only in Australia but overseas. Yeah, well, you've done it a- absolutely brilliantly. And when we look at operations, day to day operations, that you know, it seems to me that at the very heart of what you think about, other than the customer experience, of course, would be efficiency. What are some of the ways that Flight Centre is more efficient than your typical travel agency? You'll find that. Um if people have a local travel agency, it, it'll, it'll vary. It'll depend a bit on what they specialise in, if anything, what sort of suburb or town you know, they operate in, whether it's um, a high-income, middle or low-income type area. So with a flight centre brand, obviously, we're a mass market. We, we cater for all, all income and all types of travel, which is quite difficult. It means that, you know, particularly in a place like Australia, we can have a reasonably mar- um, dominant market share. Obviously, Flight Centre is not our only brands. We have uh, Travel Associates, which is higher end, and uh, yeah, with with a tend to be a much wealthier customer and um, a customer that probably spends a lot more money. But in the end, people generally will do simple point to point business themselves if if they're happy to do that. You know, particularly flights, but as soon as you get to more complexity, you know, people doing a European holiday that might involve a river cruise, maybe a, a, a short tour or a few day tours and hotels, as well as the airline, generally they will go through a travel agent. And obviously being a large organisation, we can we have invested a lot in technology, you know, digitalise a lot of our processes, but um, there's still plenty more to you can always do more. You run your business so well. When you look at a lot of other travel businesses of all descriptions, you must look at them and you and and sometimes think, you know, if we were in charge of that, we'd kill it. We'd we'd take it to to the next level. Are you ever tempted to buy other big companies in? You know, it could be the hotel business, could even be an airline, and 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 use your systems of efficiency to to improve it. That's a good question. I mean, w- one of the ways we're expanding now, you know, we have bought businesses over the years, particularly to get established in the corporate travel side of the market, which basically does the travel arrangements for corporations, you know, small, medium and large ones. And, you know, our largest one that we've just brought on board is Shell globally. And it, it's it's about a $500 million account. So we, we do the whole gamut of that. And like, for example, this year, out of about, you know, 25, 26 billion in sales, about 13 or 14 of that will be corporate travel and about 11 or 12 leisure travel, which is obviously the flight center brand and that. So our business mix has changed over the years considerably. Sure. And and does it make you want to buy other companies and apply your methodologies? 
only we, we generally only um, buy other businesses if we're totally lacking in the expertise in that particular field. And, you know, if you look at in Australia now, we work with a lot of independent travel agents now, partly because we can um, help them with buying product well and some technology. And I can assure you that a, a lot of these medium-sized travel agencies um, are pretty good, um, you know, and uh, they can teach us a few things as well as us being able to um, help them in some ways. And bear in mind, a lot of our big competition could be franchised rather than um, owning their own business. They, they franchise and that. So th- there's different models. And I, I think generally in Australia, we're in a pretty good, you know, the travel industry, particularly the retail, is in pretty good shape. The Business Lounge. I think that there would not be many people uh, that are running dominant companies that are listening to the one and two person operators and seeing what they could learn. Uh, Has that been a big, do you think that's a big reason for your success that you're always open to to learning from others? Look, uh, this has been one of the things that's come about pre-COVID, but certainly post-COVID, where we feel as an industry trying to work more together. You know, there's obviously some things you can do and some things you can't. Um, But um, I would say in the first 20 or 30, 25 years, um, we weren't interested in what other people were doing. We were doing our own thing. But I can honestly say that has changed now. And the people who have survived, particularly survived COVID, um, and and some of these, you know, travel companies, you may not know them, but they are quite big. You know, they, they might have sales of 50, 100, 200 million. So uh, there's some really good uh, medium-sized operators in in the Australian market. Okay. So let's let's look at one of the biggest players of them all, uh, Qantas. Uh, Obviously, there's there's been a lot happening here. Um, What's your feeling about Qantas's ability going forward to change its apparent culture of, of poor customer service and, and price obsession. Do you think they can turn it around or do you think that the temptation of being in a duopoly will just be too much? Qantas is an interesting, in, in an interesting position at the moment. And, you know, regardless of your, your own personal experience, it, the brand's been around over 100 years. It's a brand that's not going to go away. It's probably been damaged a bit over the last uh, you know few months in particular, and you know with new leadership, um, I, I think it will change. They've they've already announced what they're going to change, mm-hmm. and and how wide and widespread that's going to be. Bear in mind, and I do have some sympathy for them uh, because I know what it's like to go through a, a, a two year shutdown, but and it, it's bad enough as a as a retailer. You know, there's a huge amount. I think we refunded billions of dollars to customers, which meant that this was all business we did with no income. Um, But an airline is of quite a complex machine and shutting that down for two years. Sure, there are some things they did that in retrospect, you say that was short-sighted. My only feeling, if you're going to be um, critical at all of Qantas, is I think some of the incentives that businesses use, and perhaps Qantas was one of these, you've got to be very careful about uh, because what might seem to be a good incentive can possibly lead sometimes to bad behaviour. We're very much an organisation to believe in incentives 
at a, at a senior level and at the front line, but, uh, but you've got to get it right. You know, for example, at the front line, the incentive's got to make sure that the, um, that the customer is considered upfront, not secondhand. And uh, you can easily get that some of those things wrong. And I think perhaps Qantas probably may have learned from that a little bit. Listening to the customer is obviously very important for you. Do you have a system of surveying your customers? We, we use the NPS system. So, and, you know, it's the same as any industry where you're dealing um, with frontline customers. You don't always get it right. We have to train, particularly over the last, uh, you know, we had to let go uh, globally about uh, 15,000 people out of our 21,000. And so when things came back, and they came back with a rush, you know, 12 months, 12, 18 months ago, uh, we had to employ and train up a lot of people. And uh, that's not an easy job, and you don't always get it right. So um, we are a customer-focused organisation, but so, so is everyone else. Yeah, and it's interesting what you said earlier about Qantas, and it really surprised me right at the beginning of our chat, when you said that Qantas's margins are actually quite low. I think the average person in the street, including me, would have assumed that they their margins were were super high, but that that's not the case. No, what I was referring to is what they pay us in terms of commission uh, right. margin, quite low. Um, no, yeah. right at the moment they're in a bit of a sweet spot, and their margins are are quite significant. It, it's getting you know fuel prices, fuel costs are going up, but uh, there's still not enough capacity out of Australia. That's why. Airfares are so high at the moment. Has Qantas ever tried to buy Flight Centre? I mean, it seems to me that that they could take control of a lot of uh, areas that could affect their profitability if, if they bought you guys. Have they ever made a, an, a, an approach? No, not not to my knowledge. And, um, yeah, they did have a stake, a significant stake in Hello World, of course, who's, who is one of the listed uh, travel companies in Australia. So, But they basically sold out of that uh, now. So... Uh, no, I think, um, yeah, probably they didn't have the, yeah, they really didn't have the money um, when it might have been an option. Right, right. Now, switching switching gears a bit, uh, in the last few weeks, very interesting things happening in, in travel uh, in uh, America. I noticed that uh, Caesars in Las Vegas just got uh, done with a cyber attack where they were held to ransom, where their booking systems were closed down and they had to pay, pay the, uh, the cyber uh, terrorists um, 15 million US to get things operating. And prior to that, MGM had a similar booking system cyber attack. Do you guys uh, worry much about cyber attacks? Uh, what, what's your, your strategy there? Well, uh, yeah, we do. And, and we, have, we put a lot of resources, you know, particularly being a, a global company, you know, we're in 26 countries. Um, and, and, and we have a, obviously a lot of customers, a lot of customer data. Um, our, our cyber security, we take very seriously. Um, you know, and we do um, planned attacks and this and our response to them quite regularly. Um, but, uh, you know, we've been lucky so far. There's been no, we've had no significant issues, but um, as most people say, uh, it's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when uh, something like is going to happen, particularly if you're a significant organisation, you know, um, and you'll come under that spotlight at some stage. Let's delve into how you run your life. You're, you're obviously super productive. You'd, you'd have to be uh, in such a logistics-oriented uh, business. Tell us uh, a, a little about how you operate yourself, Graham Turner, Inc. 
What time do you get up in the morning? Do you have a morning ritual? How do you how do you prepare for the day? My normal life is I generally get up at about five thirty, have a coffee, read the papers, you know, until about six thirty, quarter to seven, and I try to get into work about around seven or seven fifteen or so. You know, obviously we have a lot of quite a few meetings that um, can either be early in the morning or a bit later in the afternoon or night. I normally home about six, so. That'll be a pretty normal day. It's pretty boring, isn't it? I mean, uh, <laughs> that's the way it works. Well, what I think one thing that's interesting about it is it's not a 12-hour day. You know, a lot of people from outside must assume that that a leader of an organisation that's grown, you know, so well, like Flight Centre, must be hammering themselves time-wise. But you seem quite disciplined. Is that now, now that you've got a, a you know, multi-billion dollar company, or have you always been pretty disciplined about finishing work early? Well, look, um, the the thing is that we've had two kids. Uh, we've now got uh, five grandkids, kids, but when you have kids, work's got to be more flexible. You know, you got to might have to drop them at school or go to sport in the morning or pick them up in the afternoons and all that. But um, now it's quite easy for me to um, have a reasonably disciplined work week, you know, and obviously I still have to travel a fair bit for work as well. Obviously, we've got, I've got a very, um, what I'd call a very talented group of senior people. Most of them have been uh, with us for more than 20 years. Um, you know, and um, what, one of our senior leaders just retired. Uh, she wasn't that young, but or she wasn't that old, but she'd been here for 36 years, you know. Wow. So, and quite a few of our people have been here for 25, 30 years. So I rely a lot on them. A lot of our overseas people, people who run overseas areas like uh, EMEA or the Americas or Asia have been with us for, you know, at least 15 to 20 years. So that's really important to me to um, have experienced people that not only you can trust, but really know their business backwards. Yeah, yeah. And you've got a special culture with those with those people, you've uh, got something that's really, really quite, quite fascinating. Your kind of tribal village culture. Can you take us through how that works? Yeah, well, um, it, it basically came from um, a paper I read by uh, a professor Nigel Nicholson, London School of Economics, I think, which is basically um, evolutionary psychology, and and his contention was, and this was probably about ninety mid nineties, I think, that I read this. What he contended is that humans not only like socialising, you know, living in families, perhaps in a village of four, five, six families, and generally the tribe that they are closely associate with a maximum of about 150 people, mm-hmm. which which he called the tribe. Uh, we call it an area or a tribe, mm-hmm. um, and it resonated with me. He said up above 150 people, people can't really have good one-on-one relationships. You know, there's, there's a limit to how many the average person relationships they can have with different people, knowing them and uh, knowing their names and, mm. and relating to them. And quite a few businesses, quite a few companies use this so that once you get a business up to about 150, and for us, generally, we have seven, maximum eight or nine people in a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have probably 15 to 25 maximum teams in an area or, mm-hmm. or in a tribe. And and above that, it's sort of a more bureaucracy. You've got to have that because, you know, we've, we're back to 14,000 people now. Mm. So you need a structure above that. 
but um, it's it's what we just call bureaucracy, and you've got to make sure the bureaucracy doesn't get out of control because where where things will happen in a business like us, ours is at that tribe or area or or team level. That's that's where the rubber hits the road. Yeah. Yeah, makes makes huge sense. Uh, I remember working, uh, walking around uh, Lendlease's uh, Lend offices, and they literally designed the office, the staircases that would force other departments to run into people that they wouldn't normally talk to, just so they could have some coherence. But I think small teams is a is a, a much easier way of of achieving that. Well, we we have you know in our head office here in Brisbane. We have open plan, um, and and people tend to sit in pods of you know seven or eight of their t- with their team. Mm. But it's one of the things whether you're in a shop, in a corporate um, team, or in head office, um, everyone is in a team, generally of five to eight or nine people. So yeah, it's just it's it's one thing, and and the team leader is the person who does. You know, a, a weekly, fortnightly, or monthly one-on-one with each of their team members, and so on and so forth. That's that's a really important part of our of our structure and our culture. Mm-hmm. And and do these people love travel, or they're in it because they they love the company culture more? Look, I think it's uh, it's a bit of both, but certainly in the front line, if you're selling travel to people, it certainly helps if you have a, a really good disposition towards travelling. Mm-hmm. There's quite a few opportunities. Obviously, a lot of our suppliers want our people to experience their product and that sort of thing. So it is important that you, you like travelling. But when you get into head office, you know, we have quite a few uh, people, legal, tech, and obviously finance people. Uh, it's probably varies a bit more. I've always thought there are two careers that you can't be in. One, one is being a hooker and the, the other is being in travel because you end up doing two of life's great joys, sex and travel, as a full-time occupation. And so they, they no longer bring as much joy as they would to, to the average person. How do you feel about travelling now? Are you sick of it or are you still enamoured with the concept of, of you yourself travelling? Well, um, most of my travel now is for business um, and uh, not so much for pleasure. But our daughter, for 12 years until earlier this year, lived and uh, she had a business in London. Uh, So there was plenty of reasons uh, other than business to go at least to London, which is probably, well, certainly my favourite city. I've I've lived there for quite a long time. And we also have um, an island in Greece that yeah, you know, we only get there every couple of years for maybe five days, but an island called Paros, which we think's a great place, and particularly when you're based in London, uh, it's great to get to a place like that. But um, travelling to new countries, I'm not too. It doesn't worry me one way or the other. Yeah, travelling, uh, particularly uh, assuming you can travel business class. Uh, the business class is pretty good in most carriers these days, and uh, it's not what it was, uh, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. For sure. Now, let, let's talk about going public. You you listed Flight Centre on the Stock Exchange in, I think, 1995. Why did you do that? Yeah, that's a good question. We, we, we got to a stage where really I think the main reason that we decided to go public, we I think we had about 350 shops, mainly Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, um, and the UK and Canada we were just opening. And um, we were doing about a billion dollars in sales. There was three or four of us who were the main partners in Flight Centre. And we just thought, 
for an organisation at, at our size, a public company structure puts a lot of discipline around you, whether you like it or not. Mm. And I must admit, you know, some people, particularly family businesses and founder-run businesses, they find it really hard to have all that scrutiny and all the outside, um, yeah, scrutiny and uh, and rules, if you like, mm. rather than doing your own thing. But I must admit, myself and my partners then really believe that this structure would be one of the things that would take us well into the future, and, and that's been the case. And I'm I'm a big advocate for the, for the right sort of business with the right sort of structure that it offers quite a bit of discipline, you know. And uh, and if you don't have discipline, well, you can you can get into trouble, both financial trouble as well as regulatory yep. trouble. Of course. For sure, for sure. Obviously, you know, the craft of growing a travel business, you're, you're one of the world's masters, but you've got a board that you answer to. That must create a kind of strange scenario where it's highly unlikely they know as much about travel as you do, but they're given the responsibility in a public company to, in part, direct and advise you. Do they have the guts to challenge you on on growing your company, or do they pretty much just listen and, and try and help on the sides? Look, um, it, I suppose it depends what you think um, a public company board, what their role is. And, um, you know, generally I think a good board, uh, and we have a relatively small board, I think we have um, five, uh, basically four non-execs. Sorry, there's five, and four of them have been with us for a long time, you know, probably seven to 15 years. I think it's really important because we've been through it in the past when the the board and the executive haven't had as good a relationship as is ideal. Having a relationship where you trust each other, where the board, um, although it is meant to be independent and certainly non-executive, can advise, but certainly it's a more of an oversight and making sure that we don't lose sight of the things that are important. Um, and that's the main thing rather than and, and, and it's really up to us to put the strategy to the board and the, where we see we're going and then to either endorse it or critique it. And, and, I, and I think um, certainly we, we have a good relationship with the board, the board, and, and I think a lot of respect. Um, but um, it might be might be a different story in a year's time if they uh, ask me to leave or something like that. <laughs> For sure. Well, I hope they're listening to that. And, you know, a lot of smart people in the investment world or some key smart people in the investment world think that that uh, flight centre is underpriced as a stock because uh, n- not every investor has fully appreciated your rise in the corporate market. You know, you, you talked about some of the stats earlier. Uh, you guys are, are doing really well in corporate, and you've got to assume that corporate's got a much better margin than than recreational travel. Do you think that that your, your analysts are fully appreciating the company as a as a stock going forward? Look, it varies. You know, the, the travel industry, whether it's corporate or leisure, it's not all. You know, I say beer and skittles. There's going to be challenges in it. It's it's a relatively low margin game. Corporate is more automated, a lot more. For us, it's a lot more online. You know, the margins are competitive. It's a, a very competitive industry, both in leisure and corporate. We give quite a bit of briefings to the analysts, uh, you know, after results and that. I think most of them have a reasonably good understanding. In the end, it's up to us to produce results that um, that 
you know, it's, they're not gimmies. You know, they're not. Um, it's not easy. Uh, you you have a war like in Ukraine. You obviously have the COVID thing, and suddenly things turn around, and um, you know, unexpected things come up, or you know, reasonably regularly. Uh, whether it's things like the GFC or the first and second Gulf Wars, and and nothing's really certain. You know, we talked a bit about airline margins for us. And, and they have varied a lot over the last 20 years. And relationships with airlines in particular vary. Whereas I can honestly say we, we have fantastic relationships with most of our suppliers. We put a lot of work into it. They obviously appreciate what we can, we can give them. And 99% of them, we have great relationships. Uh, and it's mutually beneficial. And that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk of COVID, I, I think in in one week in 2020, you lost 90, 97% of, of your uh, revenue or, or, or something similar. How did you survive that? Did you guys have just a very large amount of money, cash in the bank to survive that, that you'd planned, f- uh, obviously not planned for COVID, but planned for tough times? Or did you just maximise your, your debt during that period? Well, it's it's a long story that, but um, I think it was about March the fourteenth or fifteenth, twenty twenty, when um, the Australian borders were shut, and similar to transatlantic and that with uh, Donald Trump there, we came. Um, I, I, the, the story was, I think um, I just I was just travelling back from London. One of our senior people, Melanie Waters Ryan, um, was in New Zealand, and Chris Galanti, who runs the U, UK operation, then. When we heard this, we decided, and, and it was Mel and Chris said, look, we've got to set up a war room, which we did immediately. And we were in that war room for the next three months uh, in head office here, most of the time, seven days a week. We had a reasonable amount of cash. I think at the time we had about 15, uh, 1.5 billion cash, available cash. But obviously that doesn't last long when we're, our costs at the time were 230 million a month uh, and our income went to nothing almost overnight. Mm. Uh, so, um, but with, with our our treasury, with our finance people and our operational leaders, you know, the next uh, two or three months were spent um, preparing for a major um, understanding that we wouldn't need some major financing um, and it would it would cost us, uh, you know, in dilution of the, of the existing shareholders, which it did and, and we got it. We were well oversubscribed. When when the um, when it came down to the wire and um, you know this obviously we survived but it was a, a very close call we had to get for example we had to get our costs down to under sixty five million from that two hundred and thirty million a month um, w- within about two or three months and when you've got we had fourteen hundred shops globally all with leases and you know there was a lot of um, a lot of pain we had to let go. You know, fourteen or fifteen thousand people, which was, and a lot of them were reasonably senior people as well. A lot of them were friends yeah. of um, of leadership who had to um, had to talk to them about it, and uh, it, it was a pretty traumatic time. But yeah, it was also a challenging time. And I think if you ask most of our leadership team now, they it, it was tough. It was not great. But um, it was a challenge that we we got through, and I think we're pretty um, pleased with the way we survived and um, got up and running again. Yeah, no, it was absolutely superb under incredibly tough circumstances. The Business Lounge.
let's finish, Graham, talking about your, your eight lessons for life. Uh, the first one, cash is everything. Now, we know where that came from. That came from the top deck cash uh, problem uh, 40 years ago, I guess. Tell us, for, for the entrepreneurs listening, uh, the importance of cash. Well, yeah, it, it was a lesson of eighty eighty one when we basically ran out of cash and we had, at the time, we had about 70 or 80 fairly old double-decker buses. So you go to the Nat West Bank and say, um, look, we've got, you know, 80 buses. We've, they probably owe us however a million pounds. They're, they're going to look at you and say, just shake their head. There's no way you're going to... And, and in the end, banks tend to loan... If you need the banks to loan you money, or investors for that matter, the smart ones will probably only lend to people who don't really need it you know, deep down. Cash flow is something that every person in business, every entrepreneur has got to be very aware of all the time because that's what business runs off. You know, you're, you've got to have cash flow, particularly if you're not profitable, particularly if you're a startup, you've got a plan for, you, for your cash burn over a period of time. Yeah. And the next two in your eight lessons uh, for life are back a hunch and ask for permission later. They kind of go together. Have, have, you, have you been particularly hunch-orientated, intuitive when it comes to your decisions? Look, I'm, I'm reasonably conservative, which, you, you know, in this, in this business world now, uh, it's, it's quite difficult. But uh, luckily, we've got quite a few younger people who will um, bring up some pretty interesting opportunities. I, I'll tend to be quite conservative. So if someone's got a, a, an idea or a business that they want to promote, yeah, it will take me a bit of convincing if it's if it's left field. But um, I think if they both come together and we, we both think it's a good idea, well, maybe it is. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you've still got an eye. They've got to prove themselves uh, in depth, but you're still open to it. Yeah, well, I mean, one really good example is um, just recently, post-COVID, pre-COVID, we have this travel money business, basically a foreign exchange business. We thought, you know, during COVID, no one used cash anymore. And we thought, well, I thought, this is not going to come back. You know, we, we closed it down totally for about 18 months, to nearly two years. Then we tentatively opened a couple of shops and they just went off. Really? Now we're back to 70 or 80 shops and it, it is remarkably profitable and uh, we, we just have trouble satisfying the demand for it. So, you know, that that was the hunch that was exactly wrong, um, and and that and you can and, and some of my leadership team said, you know, once we had one or two shops opening, we saw it all demand. Th- that was their hunch, and um, they were very successful at that. Yeah. Next rule uh, for lessons for life: uh, have a team you can totally trust and don't panic. So, do you think you've got that team that you totally trust? Definitely, uh, and you know, as I said before, we've got a very experienced team that's been with us. We've all been together for a long time and it doesn't work for everyone. Yeah, obviously, if you've got a leadership team, you've got to trust them. And also, yeah, the don't panic is is also fairly obvious. And and I think that my team during COVID, it was exactly what they didn't do. Uh, They didn't panic. We worked together, you know, for long hours. We used to, and the, the sound every we're on the top floor here, and we also have a cafe sort of restaurant here. Um, and um, about five o'clock every afternoon, we'd hear the clinking clinking of bottles as a tray mobile came around with uh, a few bottles of rosé and red. 
um, so that we, you know, generally we're here till eight o'clock at night or so, and uh, but for the last couple of hours we at least have a, a glass of wine together as well. Love it. Another three of your uh, rules, understand a business before you buy it, get that, be prepared to go down some dry gullies, so, so you know, it doesn't, not everyone's going to be a winner. Don't retire until you're ready. And I want to just uh, uh, finish on, on the last one, have fun. You built this business, you go in there, you, you started Top Deck Travel with fun as, as, as the major driver. How at the forefront of your thinking is going into work each day and, and having fun these days? Oh, look, it's, it's everything. I mean, obviously every job's a bit different, you know, it, within our organisation. And, you know, uh, for, for some people, for, for most of us, it, it is hard work. Some of it's probably boring. But certainly not at the end of the day or the beginning of the day or the middle of the day. You can't have some fun with each other. Even if you're talking business, you know, having having a lunch with some of our suppliers, which is quite common, um, we, we do a lot of – we have these buzz nights, which are once a month. Each area has a buzz night, which involves awards and recognition. And generally, assuming you do drink, they're a lot of fun with music and that sort of thing. And that happens throughout our organisation in every country and in, in every um, area. To me, if business is not fun, well, um, you, you shouldn't be there. Yeah, great words. Graham, it's been an absolute honour to, to have you here. I mean, we will, uh, everyone listening will have learnt so much. I certainly have. Thanks, mate, so much for being in the Business Lounge. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. The Business Lounge, where business outsiders become insiders. So, what did we learn? Well, jeepers, I could write a book on this. Uh, Number one, reward your staff, be serious about that. All the way through, Graham talked about how he was looking after his staff, how he valued his staff, how they stay so long, you know, 36 years, I think, were one person. And, and right near the end, he talked about buzz nights. Every single month, he gets his teams, they have a night with, you know, alcohol and fun food and music, and he rewards them. He gives out uh, accommodations for people who've done a brilliant job. That's a great technique that we can insert in our own businesses. Next, go all in when things are tough. Notice when COVID happened, he didn't take the position of defense. He took the position of attack. He's established a war room. He worked seven days a week. They really aggressively met the challenge of COVID rather than, than just purely trying to survive. They're trying to survive in the very best way. Keep your team small. He talked about his uh, theory that seven to nine people is the ideal size of a team and he's got 25 uh, groups typically in an area, which is another higher uh, level. He, he's really structured how teams work in at Flight Centre a lot more uh, carefully than I, th- I think most large organisations have with, you know, I think he said 15,000 staff. Imagine that. Imagine this, that many groups of seven to nine people working closely, having morale, being team-like. It's a very powerful way to operate. And as an extension of that, 
you know, what I really got from him as well was to study great ideas. How did he come up with that theory about the tribal village way of working? He got it from the London School of Economics. So here's someone reading a paper on, on, on tribal ways of working and then applying it to his business. He's not just re- reading travel periodicals and trying to learn from them. He's learning from everywhere. And then finally, the importance of having fun. From the time he started his first business, Top Deck, right up to now, you could hear it in the passion in which he spoke right in the last few minutes of the interview. He really does value fun. He puts it as primary in what he does day to day, not secondary after just making money. And we can all learn a lot from that. It's been fantastic to have him here. What an honour to have Graham Turner in the Business Lounge. Jeff Bezos, Arianna Huffington and Phil Knight are three of the world's most successful business people. What are their secrets? What were they like growing up? And what's it like to work with them? Global Disruptors with me, Rob Middle, is the podcast that gives you the backstory of the world's most successful people. Rod Little unlocks the struggles and success stories of some of the world's best-known entrepreneurs with Global Disruptors, the riveting radio series that delves deep into the world of extraordinary entrepreneurs. Global Disruptors explores the exceptional lives of the trailblazers who dared to defy the odds and rewrite the rules of the business world. What sets these mavericks apart? What secret source fuels their unwavering determination and grit? How do they keep their eyes on the prize, ignoring distractions and overcoming the toughest obstacles? Global Disruptors isn't just about the stories. We'll blend thoughtful analysis with moments of lighthearted humour to bring you the full inside scoop on these remarkable entrepreneurs. Their triumphs, their struggles, and their indomitable spirit that propels them forward. Rod Little unlocks the struggles and success stories of some of the world's best-known entrepreneurs with global disruptors. Only on Disrupt Radio.